Chapter Four of Nobody. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Nobody by Susan Warner. Chapter Four. Another luncheon party. A journey can be decided upon in a minute, but not so soon entered upon. Mrs. Carruthers needed a week to make ready, and during that week her son and heir found opportunity to make several visits at Mrs. Wishart's. A certain marriage connection between the families gave him somewhat the familiar right of a cousin. He could go when he pleased, and Mrs. Wishart liked him, and used no means to keep him away. Tom Carruthers was a model of manly beauty, gentle and agreeable in his manners, and of an evidently affectionate and kindly disposition. Why should not the young people like each other? she thought. And things were in fair train. Upon this came the departure for Florida. Tom spoke his regrets unreservedly out. He could not help himself. His mother's health required her to go to the South for the month of March, and she must necessarily have his escort. Lois said little. Mrs. Wishart feared, or hoped, she felt the more. A little absence is no harm, the lady thought. May be no harm. But now Lois began to speak of returning to Champoisha, and that indeed might make the separation too long for profit. She thought, too, that Lois was a little more thoughtful and a trifle more quiet than she had been before this journey was talked of. One day, it was a cold, blustery day in March, Mrs. Wishart and her guest had gone down into the lower part of the city to do some particular shopping. Mrs. Wishart, having promised Lois that they would take lunch and rest at a particular fashionable restaurant. Such an expedition had a great charm for the little country girl to whom everything was new, and to whose healthy mental senses the ways and manners of the business world, with all the accessories thereof, were as interesting as the gayer regions and the lighter life of fashion. Mrs. Wishart had occasion to go to a banker's in Wall Street. She had business at the post-office. She had something to do which took her to several furrier shops. She visited a particular magazine of varieties in Maiden Lane, where things, she told Lois, were about half the price they bore uptown. She spent an hour at the tract house in Nassau Street. There was no question of taking the carriage into these regions. An omnibus had brought them to Wall Street— and from there they went about on their own feet, walking and standing alternately, till both ladies were well tired. Mrs. Wishart breathed out a sigh of relief as she took her seat in the omnibus, which was to carry them uptown again. "'Tired out, Lois, are you? I am.' "'I am not. I have been too much amused. It's delightful to take you anywhere. You reverse the old fairy-tale catastrophe, and a little handful of ashes turns to fruit for you, or to gold.' "'Well, I will make some silver turn to fruit presently. "'I want my lunch, and I know you do, too. "'I should like to have you with me always, Lois. "'I get some of the good of your fairy fruit and gold when you are along with me. "'Tell me, child, do you do that sort of thing at home?' "'What sort?' said Lois, laughing. "'Turning things into gold.' "'I don't know,' said Lois. "'I believe I do pick up a good deal of that sort of gold as I go along.' But at home our life has a great deal of sameness about it, you know. Here everything is wonderful. Wonderful, 
repeated Mrs. Wishart. "'To you it is wonderful, and to me it is the dullest old story, the whole of it. I feel as dusty now, mentally, as I am outwardly. But we'll have some luncheon, Lois, and that will be refreshing, I hope.' Hopes were to be much disappointed. Getting out of the omnibus near the locality of the desired restaurant, the whole street was found in confusion. There had been a fire, it seemed, that morning, in a house adjoining or very near, and loungers and firemen and an engine and hose took up all the way. No restaurant to be reached there that morning. Greatly dismayed, Mrs. Wishart put herself and Lois in one of the street-cars to go on uptown. "'I am famishing,' she declared, "'and now I do not know where to go. Everybody has had lunch at home by this time, or there are half a dozen houses I could go to.' "'Are there no restaurants but that one?' "'Plenty, but I could not eat in comfort unless I know things are clean. I know that place, and the others I don't know.' "'Ha! Mr. Dillwyn!' This exclamation was called forth by the sight of a gentleman who just at that moment was entering the car. Apparently he was an old acquaintance, for the recognition was eager on both sides. The newcomer took a seat on the other side of Mrs. Wishart. "'Where do you come from?' said he. "'That I find you here.' "'From the depths of business, Wall Street, and all over, and now the depths of despair that we cannot get lunch. I am going home starving.' "'What does that mean?' "'Oh, just a contretemps. I promised my young friend here I would give her a good lunch at the best restaurant I knew. And to-day of all days, just as we come tired out to get some refreshment, there's a fire and firemen and all the street in a hubbub. "'Nothing for it but to go home fasting.' "'No,' said he, "'there is a better thing. "'You will do me the honour and give me the pleasure of lunching with me. "'I am living at the Imperial, and here we are.' He signalled the car to stop, even as he spoke, and rose to help the ladies out. Mrs. Wishart had no time to think about it, and on the sudden impulse yielded. They left the car, and a few steps brought them to the immense, beautiful building called the Imperial Hotel. Mr. Dillwyn took them in as one at home, and conducted them to the great dining-room, proposed to them to go first to a dressing-room, but this Mrs. Wishart declined. So they took places at a small table, near enough to one of the great clear windows for Lois to look down into the avenue, and see all that was going on there. But first the place where she was occupied her. With a kind of wondering delight her eye went down the lines of the immense room, reviewed its loftiness, its adornments, its light and airiness and beauty, its perfection of luxurious furnishing and outfitting. Few people were in it just at this hour, and the few were too far off to trouble at all the sense of privacy. Lois was tired. She was hungry. The sudden escape from din and motion and dust to refreshment and stillness and a soft atmosphere was like the changes in an Arabian night's enchantment, and this place was splendid enough and dainty enough to fit into one of those stories, too. Lois sat back in her chair, quietly but intensely enjoying. It never occurred to her that she herself might be a worthy object of contemplation. Yet a fairer might have been sought for all New York through. She was not vulgarly gazing. She had not the aspect of one strange to the place. Quiet, grave, withdrawn into herself, she wore an air of most sweet reserve and unconscious dignity. 
features more beautiful might be found, no doubt, and in numbers. It was not the mere lines, nor the mere colors of her face, which made it so remarkable, but rather the mental character, the beautiful poise of a spirit at rest within itself, the simplicity of unconsciousness, the freshness of a mind to which nothing has grown stale or old, and which sees nothing in its conventional shell, along with the sweetness that comes of habitual dwelling in sweetness. Both her companions occasionally looked at her. Lois did not know it. She did not think herself of sufficient importance to be looked at. And then came the luncheon. Such a luncheon! And served with a delicacy which became it. Chocolate, which was a rich froth. Rolls, which were puff-balls of perfection. Salad and fruit. Anything yet more substantial Mrs. Wishart declined. Also she declined wine. "'I should not dare before Lois,' she said. Therewith came their entertainer's eyes round to Lois again. "'Is she allowed to keep your conscience, Mrs. Wishart?' "'Poor child, I don't charge her with that. But you know, Mr. Dillwyn, in presence of angels one would walk a little carefully.' "'That almost sounds as if the angels would be uncomfortable companions,' said Lois. "'Not quite, sans gêne,' the gentleman added. Then Lois's eyes met his full. "'I do not know what that is,' she said. "'Only a couple of French words.' "'I do not know French,' said Lois simply. He had not seen before what beautiful eyes they were, soft and grave, and true with the clearness of the blue ether. He thought he would like another such look into their transparent depths. So he asked, "'But what is it about the wine?' "'Oh!' "'We are water-drinkers up about my home,' Lois answered, looking, however, at her chocolate cup from which she was refreshing herself. "'That is what the English call us as a nation. I am sure most inappropriately. Some of us know good wine when we see it, and most of the rest have an intimate acquaintance with wine or something else that is not good. Perhaps Miss Lothrop has formed her opinion and practice upon knowledge of this latter kind?' Lois did not say. She thought her opinions or practice could have very little interest for this fine gentleman. "'Lois is unfashionable enough to form her own opinions,' Mrs. Wishart remarked. "'But not inconsistent enough to build them on nothing, I hope.' "'I could tell you what they are built on,' said Lois, brought out by this challenge. "'But I do not know that you would see from that how well-founded they are.' "'I should be very grateful for such an indulgence.' In this particular case we're speaking of, they are built on two foundation stones, both out of the same quarry, said Lois, her color rising a little while she smiled, too. One is this, whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. And the other, I will neither eat meat, nor drink wine, nor anything by which my brother stumbleth, or is offended, or made weak. Lois did not look up as she spoke, and Mrs. Wishart smiled with amusement. Their host's face expressed an undoubted astonishment. He regarded the gentle and yet bold speaker with steady attention for a minute or two, noting the modesty and the gentleness and the fearlessness with which she spoke, noting her great beauty, too. "'Precious stones,' said he lightly when she had done speaking. 
I do not know whether they are broad enough for such a superstructure as you would build on them. And then he turned to Mrs. Wishart again, and they left the subject and plunged into a variety of other subjects where Lois scarce could follow them. What they did not talk of! Mr. Dillwyn, it appeared, had lately returned from abroad, where Mrs. Wishart had also formerly lived for some time, and now they went over a multitude of things and people familiar to both of them, but of which Lois did not even know the names. She listened, however, eagerly, and gleaned, as an eager listener generally may, a good deal. Places, until now unheard of, took a certain form and aspect in Lois's imagination. People were discerned, also in imagination, as being of different types and wonderfully different habits and manners of life from any Lois knew at home, or had even seen in New York. She heard pictures talked of, and wondered what sort of a world that art world might be in which Mr. Dillwyn was so much at home. Lois had never seen any pictures in her life which were much to her, and the talk about countries sounded strange. She knew where Germany was on the map, and could give its boundaries no doubt accurately. But all this gossip about the Rhineland and its vineyards and the vintages there and in France sounded fascinatingly novel. And she knew where Italy was on the map, but Italy's skies and soft air and mementos of past times of history and art were unknown, and she listened with ever-quickening attention. The result of the whole at last was a mortifying sense that she knew nothing. These people, her friend and this other, lived in a world of mental impressions and mentally stored-up knowledge, which seemed to make their life unendingly broader and richer than her own. Especially the gentleman. Lois observed that it was consistently he who had something new to tell Mrs. Wishart, and that in all the ground they went over he was more at home than she. Indeed, Lois got the impression that Mr. Dillwyn knew the world and everything in it better than anybody she had ever seen. Mr. Carruthers was extremely au fait in many things. Lois had the thought, not the word, but Mr. Dillwyn was an older man and had seen much more. He was terrifically wise in it all, she thought, and by degrees she got a kind of awe of him. A little of Mrs. Wishart, too. How much her friend knew, how at home she was in this big world. What a plain little piece of ignorance she was herself beside her. Well, thought Lois, every one to his place. My place is Champoisha. I suppose I am fitted for that. Miss Lothrop, said their entertainer here, will you allow me to give you some grapes? Grapes in March, said Lois, smiling, as a beautiful white bunch was laid before her. People who live in New York can have everything, it seems, that they want. Provided they can pay for it, Mrs. Wishart put in. "'How is it in your part of the world?' said Mr. Dillwyn. "'You cannot have what you want?' "'Depends on what order you keep your wishes in,' said Lois. "'You can have strawberries in June, and grapes in September.' "'What order do you keep your wishes in?' was the next question. "'I think it best to have as few as possible.' "'But that would reduce life to a mere framework of life, if one had no wishes.' "'One can always find something to fill it up,' said Lois. "'Pray, what would you substitute? For with wishes I connect the accomplishment of wishes.' "'Are they always connected?' "'No, not always, but generally the one are the means to the other.' 
I believe I do not find it so. Then, pardon me, what would you substitute, Miss Lothrop, to fill up your life and not have it a bare existence? There is always work, said Lois shyly, and there are the pleasures that come without being wished for. I mean, without being particularly sought and expected. Does much come that way? asked their entertainer, with an incredulous smile of mockery. "'Oh, a great deal!' cried Lois, and then she checked herself. "'This is a very interesting investigation, Mrs. Wishart,' said the gentleman. "'Do you think I may presume upon Miss Lothrop's good nature and carry it further?' "'Miss Lothrop's good nature is a commodity I never knew yet to fail.' "'Then I will go on, for I am curious to know, with an honest desire to enlarge my circle of knowledge.' "'Will you tell me, Miss Lothrop, what are the pleasures in your mind when you speak of their coming unsought?' Lois tried to draw back. "'I do not believe you would understand them,' she said a little shyly. "'I trust you do my understanding less than justice.' "'No,' said Lois, blushing, "'for your enjoyments are in another line.' "'Please indulge me and tell me the line of yours.' "'He is laughing at me.' thought Lois, and her next thought was, "'What matter?' So after an instant's hesitation she answered simply, "'To anybody who has travelled over the world, Champoisha is a small place, and to anybody who knows all you have been talking about, what we know at Champoisha would seem very little. But every morning it is a pleasure to me to wake and see the sunrise, and the fields, and the river and the sound are a constant delight to me at all times of day, and in all sorts of weather. A walk or a ride is always a great pleasure, and different every time. Then I take constant pleasure in my work. "'Mrs. Wishart,' said the gentleman, "'this is a revelation to me. Would it be indiscreet if I were to ask Miss Lothrop what she can possibly mean under the use of the term work?' I think Mrs. Wishart considered that it would be rather indiscreet, and wished Lois would be a little reticent about her home affairs. Lois, however, had no such feeling. "'I mean work,' she said. "'I can have no objection that anybody should know what our life is at home. We have a little farm, very small. It just keeps a few cows and sheep. In the house we are three sisters, and we have an old grandmother to take care of, and to keep the house, and to manage the farm.' "'But surely you cannot do that last,' said the gentleman. "'We do not manage the cows and sheep,' said Lois, smiling. "'Men's hands do that, but we make the butter, and we spin the wool, and we cultivate our garden. "'That we do ourselves entirely, and we have a good garden, too.' "'And that is one of the things,' said Lois, smiling, "'in which I take unending pleasure.' "'What can you do in a garden?' All there is to do except ploughing. We get a neighbour to do that. And the digging? I can dig, said Lois, laughing. But do not. Certainly I do. And sow seeds and dress beds? Certainly. And enjoy every moment of it. I do it early, before the sun gets hot. And then there is all the rest, gathering the fruit and pulling the vegetables, and the care of them when we have got them, and I take great pleasure in it all. The summer mornings and spring mornings in the garden are delightful, and all the work of a garden is delightful, I think. You will accept the digging? 
"'You are laughing at me,' said Lois quietly. "'No, I do not accept the digging. I like it particularly. Hoeing and raking I do not like half so well.' "'I am not laughing,' said Mr. Dillwyn. "'Or certainly not at you. If at anybody it is myself. I am filled with admiration.' "'There is no room for that, either.' said Lois. We just have it to do, and we do it. That is all. Miss Lothrop, I never have had to do anything in my life since I left college. Lois thought privately her own thoughts, but did not give them expression. She had talked a great deal more than she meant to do. Perhaps Mrs. Wishart, too, thought there had been enough of it, for she began to make preparations for departure. Mrs. Wishart, said Mr. Dillwyn, I have to thank you for the greatest pleasure I have enjoyed since I landed. Unsought and unwished for, too, according to Miss Lothrop's theory. Certainly we have to thank you, Philip, for we were in a distressed condition when you found us. Come and see me. And, she added, sotto voce, as he was leading her out, and Lois stepped on before them, I consider that all the information that has been given you is strictly in confidence. Quite delicious confidence. "'Yes, but not for all ears,' added Mrs. Wishart somewhat anxiously. "'I am glad you think me worthy. I will not abuse the trust.' "'I did not say I thought you worthy,' said the lady, laughing. "'I was not consulted. Young eyes see the world in the fresh colours of morning, and think daisies grow everywhere.' They had reached the street. Mr. Dillwyn accompanied the ladies a part of their way, and then took leave of them. End of chapter 4